Hey there, Cremaholics. It is your host, Kenzie, back this week with another brand new Friday episode. I hope everybody enjoyed their Thanksgiving holiday just as much as I did. For this Friday episode, I actually have a case that I have never heard before, which is very shocking to me because it comes straight out of my hometown in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. On September 13, 1983, the tiny little town of Gatlinburg, Tennessee, which is my hometown in East Tennessee, saw something they thought they would never see before, a double homicide. 21-year-old Melissa Hill was a front desk clerk at a small motel called Rocky Top Village Inn. The motel's main office was located off of a small road called Airport Road, and the hotel also operated a smaller office off of Reagan Drive. On this particular night, Melissa was working from 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. alone in the Reagan Drive office. A man who also worked for the motel named Robert Bennett was working the main office off of Airport Road. Robert Bennett had touched in with Melissa sometime around 7.30 and 8 p.m. that evening to check on her and see how her shift was going. Melissa informs him that all is well and that she would speak to him later. Robert Bennett tried one more time to check on her sometime around 10 p.m., but never received any answer. However, Melissa's husband was a sheriff for the Sevierville Police Department at this time, and he touches base with her at 10.30 to check on her, and he stated during this phone call all seemed perfectly fine. Robert Bennett tried one more time around 10.45 to call Melissa, but again, he got no answer. He did not like that she was not answering the phone and he was not able to get in touch with her, as this was not the typical situation. Robert asked a man named Troy Valentine, who worked as the hotel security guard, to drive up to the office to check on the Melissa just to make sure she was okay. During this time, none of the night security guards were able to arm themselves with any type of weapon to be able to protect themselves, so Troy only had a flashlight on his person. It is now 11.30 p.m., and Robert calls up to the Reagan Drive office to check on Troy because he still has not returned or given him any answer as to whether Melissa is okay or not. The distance between these two offices is not much of a distance at all. When Robert arrives at the Rocky Top Village Inn at the Reagan Drive office, he notices that the office light is on and that the two-bedroom suite that is located right next to the office, the lights are on as well. When Robert goes to look into the window of the two-bedroom suite, he sees the body of Troy laying on the kitchen floor and he immediately calls the police. It took no time at all for the Gatlinburg Police Department to arrive at Rocky Top Village and after hearing that somebody in their town has been murdered because if you know anything about the town of Gatlinburg, you know that this is very highly unlikely. When the police arrived, not only did they find Troy's body on the floor in the kitchen, but as they were going through the rest of the suite, they see Melissa Hill lying on her back leaning against the bed in the wall. Dr. Cleland Blake, who was a forensic pathologist, reported to the scene of these murders during the very early morning hours on the 14th. As he was looking around the crime scene, he notices that Troy has a handcuff attached to his left wrist, and he was lying in a pool of blood that spread 18 inches away from his body. Melissa had massive amounts of blood around her neck, and her shirt was heavily soaked in blood from her neck all the way to her waist, and there was blood completely covering her blue jeans and the car around her body. 
After Dr. Blake had wrote up the autopsy, it had shown that Melissa Hill had been shot at close range in the top left side of her head with a small caliber bullet, and she had been stabbed over 18 times. The autopsy continued to go on to say that the fatal injury was a wound across her neck that had cut her trachea and into the next major blood vessel that chipped her spinal column. Dr. Blake testified in court to say, this is a very savage injury. He went on to say that Melissa suffered these stab wounds prior to death and she had several defensive slash wounds from her right palm and into the back of her neck. After the autopsy was released for Troy Valentine, it stated that he had received several stab wounds throughout his chest, back, and had lacerations on the back of his head. There was two major stab wounds to the jawbone and one large size stab wound to the back of his neck. And furthermore, it stated that he had been hit by some type of object that left a two inch diameter laceration on his head, which Dr. Blake testified in court that he believes he was hit with his own flashlight. And if this was not bad enough, Troy had been shot between the eyes. Eyes. Dr. Blake tells the court that these murders were extremely gruesome and some of the most savage acts he has ever seen. The big question everyone in the town of Gatlinburg had is who could have done something so horrid in their tiny, perfect little town? Now, before I go any further, I want to talk more about the town of Gatlinburg because this is something this tiny town has never seen before, and especially something so heinous and gruesome. For those of you who are not familiar with Gatlinburg, it is the town where I grew up, and in this town, everybody knows everyone, and everybody knows everyone's business. The last time I had checked, there was roughly about 4,000 locals in the town of Gatlinburg, and that may have changed a little bit because it has been quite some time since I looked. And that roughly 4,000 people does not include the millions of tourists that come there every year. This is just counting the locals who reside in the town. And back in 1986, there was nowhere near millions of people visiting every single year. Back at this time, the town of Gatlinburg was very quiet. So for everyone in their town to hear of something this horrible, it sent shockwaves through the locals. Although there was not millions of people visiting the town of Gatlinburg in 1986, there were still lots of tourists coming and going, and that doesn't always mean these are going to be good people, even though Gatlinburg is considered one of those small fairy tale vacation towns. Just days prior to September 13, 1986, four friends were traveling up to East Tennessee. Kimberly Pelly, Eddie Tattoo Leroy Harris, Joseph D. Modica, and Rufus Doby. Rufus Doby was also known as a trans woman by the name of Ashley Silvers. Tattoo Eddie Harris was somebody who often lived on the streets but typically would stay down in Atlanta, Georgia. While on the streets, Tattoo Eddie sold drugs and was considered a hustler but would often end up in prison. Tattoo Eddie got his name because he is completely covered head to toe with 134 tattoos that he had acquired during his several prison stints. In August of 1986, just one month prior to the gruesome murders, Tattoo Eddie had headed down to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where he had met Rufus Doby and Joe DiModica. The three men spent some time in Fort Lauderdale and Daytona, Florida, hustling and dealing drugs on the street. After making the money they needed in Daytona and Fort Lauderdale, the three men headed back up towards Atlanta, Georgia to pick up Tattoo Eddie's girlfriend, Kimberly Pelly. 
After leaving Atlanta, Georgia is when the group of four started to make their way up to East Tennessee. When arriving into East Tennessee, they go straight to Knoxville because Knoxville is a bigger city outside of Gatlinburg. They know that they will have an easier time making money in Knoxville and not in Gatlinburg. While they were in Knoxville, the four of them were dealing drugs out on the street. They were working as sex workers and also worked as exotic dancers at the Pepper Tree in Knoxville. The four of them had always lived a life on the streets, so working as sex workers and Rufus Doby working as an exotic dancer was not something that was unusual for them. During the same night, Joe DiModica had stated that he had a friend who lived in Knoxville and he was going to hit him up for some money that he could borrow so they could get themselves a hotel room for the night. But the friend declined offering Joe any money. But Joe had a backup plan. After the group of four finished up their work out on the streets and at the strip club making very little money, the four of them drove over to the residence of a woman named Tracy Clark. Joe DiModica was also friends with Tracy. Joe had asked Tracy if him and his three friends could stay the night in her driveway. Tracy said she had no problem with it, so the group of four slept in their car in her driveway. The next night on Friday, September 12th, the group of four had stayed at another friend of Joe's by the name of Tim Farmer. On Saturday morning, this friend of his, Tim Farmer, had offered the four of them to stay the night again that evening, but Tattoo Eddie and Joe had told them that they had plans to head into Gatlinburg and possibly stay the night there. What Tim Farmer did not know is the two of them had plans to go into Gatlinburg to rob somebody for more money. Tattoo Eddie, Joe DiModica, Kimberly Pelly, and Rufus Doby leave the city of Knoxville and drive Tattoo Eddie's car to Gatlinburg, which is about an hour drive. After the four of them arrive to the town of Gatlinburg in the afternoon of September 13th, the four of them head straight into the Great Smoky Mountain National Park and they hike up to Laurel Falls. If you are not familiar with Laurel Falls, I just want to tell you a little bit about it real quick. This is one of my most absolute favorite hikes in the Smoky Mountain National Park. It's not a very long hike and at the end of the hiking trail, there's a very beautiful waterfall with a little swimming hole. While spending the day at Laurel Falls, Eddie, Joe, Kimberly, and Rufus spend most of their time trying to figure out who they were going to rob and how they were going to do it. The four of them decide that they weren't going to rob a specific person, but they were going to start targeting businesses in Gatlinburg. The four of them hike back down from Laurel Falls, they get into Eddie's car, and they drive back into the town of Gatlinburg. The drive from Laurel Falls into Gatlinburg is not a far drive at all. At some point during this drive back down into the town of Gatlinburg, Tattoo Eddie decides instead of robbing somebody, they are going to get a motel for the night and they're just going to stay there. Tattoo Eddie takes them to the Rocky Top Village Inn, but the plans of not robbing somebody would quickly change upon arrival at the motel. Once they arrive at the Rocky Top Village Inn, Kimberly gets out of the car and she goes into the front desk where she meets a woman named Melissa. Kimberly talks to Melissa for just a few minutes and Melissa tells Kimberly that they do have a suite not far from the office that they could rent to them for the evening. Kimberly tells Melissa that she would love to be able to rent this suite and asks Melissa to show her where it is located. Kimberly and Melissa leave the office and start to head over to the suite and Tattoo Eddie jumps out of his car to join the two of them in the motel suite. As soon as the three walked into the suite area, both Kimberly and Eddie start to attack Melissa. Tattoo Eddie wastes no time and starts stabbing Melissa repeatedly over and over and then shoots her in the back of her head. 
A golf cart shows up on the scene and it's Troy Valentine, the night security guard, who is driving the golf cart. As I mentioned earlier on in the story, Robert Bennett had sent Troy over to the Rocky Top Village Inn main office to check on Melissa after not hearing from her. Troy runs straight into the suite as he hears Melissa being attacked and from behind Troy gets hit in the head with his own flashlight by Kimberly Pelly. Tattoo Eddie wastes no time again and just starts repeatedly stabbing Troy over and over and then shoots him right between his eyes. After Tattoo Eddie and Kimberly savagely murder Troy and Melissa, the two of them go into the main office where they steal $499 in cash and run back to the car. Eddie and Kimberly yell at both Joe and Rufus to get in the car quickly. Both Joe and Rufus were in total shock at what just took place as Eddie and Kimberly approached the car completely covered head to toe in blood. As I mentioned prior, because Robert Bennett could not get a hold of Troy or Melissa, he headed over to the Rocky Top Village and main office off of Reagan Drive to check on them. And when he arrives, he finds both of the bodies of his employees. But by the time the police arrive, Tattoo Eddie, Kimberly, Joe, and Rufus are long gone. The four of them had jumped into the car and took off back to the city of Knoxville. Once they arrive back into Knoxville, Joe and Rufus ask Eddie to drop them back off at Tracy Clark's house. Eddie agrees to drop them back off, but tells the two of them that him and Kimberly are not going to stay the night and that they would see them the next day. The next morning rolls around, which is now September 14th, and the four of them head off into Nashville, which is about a three-hour drive from Knoxville. When the four of them arrive into Nashville, they spend a few hours in the town for whatever reason, and Joe and Rufus decide that they are not going to stay in Nashville with Eddie and Kimberly, that they are going to head back into Gatlinburg, and they take Eddie's car. When the pair had arrived into Gatlinburg, it was not long until they were pulled over by the police and brought in for questioning for possessing a stolen vehicle and were questioned about the murders. The two men had denied any involvement in the murders, and with very little evidence to keep them detained, they were released by the Gatlinburg Police Department. But while they were in police custody and questioned, they had given the police the names of Tracy Clark and Tim Farmer and stated that they had stayed at each of their houses just days prior. The Gallagher Police Department made the correct decision when they decided to question both Tim and Tracy about Joe and Rufus being at their house. While questioning both Tim and Tracy, they gave the police the name of Tattoo Eddie. After learning everything they could about Tattoo Eddie, the police are now on the lookout for him to bring him in for questioning about the murders. Days later, on September 16, 1986, so just two days after the murders took place, an envelope was found inside of a phone booth in Maggie Valley, North Carolina. I want to make a quick note that Tattoo Eddie is originally from Asheville, North Carolina, which is not far from Maggie Valley. This phone booth was very close to the Maggie Valley police station. Inside the envelope was a small pocket knife and a letter. This letter stated that the small pocket knife had belonged to the woman who was murdered in Gatlinburg. The letter continues to go on to say that they were basically asking for forgiveness. Whoever had written this letter states that they are asking for forgiveness for killing those two people in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. 
The letter goes on to explain that all they wanted was the money and the original plan was to just leave the two victims completely unharmed. But Joe had interrupted and seen that two people were handcuffed. The letter states when Joe seen the two of them handcuffed, he went absolutely crazy and cut them up and forced me to shoot the two people. I am the one who shot the man guard and the woman, but was hoping that I had missed the lady. I did it because I was afraid of Joe and was afraid that he would kill me. I hope that neither of the victims have any children and I had to get this off my chest because I could not sleep at night. I am returning this small pocket knife because it belongs to the female victim and I think it might mean something to someone. On December 16, 1987, so an entire year after the murders take place, the police finally track down Tattoo Eddie in Atlanta, Georgia and arrest him and bring him in for questioning. While being questioned, Tattoo Eddie completely denies everything and says that he has never even been to Gatlinburg, he doesn't know who Tim Farmer is and definitely doesn't know anybody by the name of Tracy Clark, and that he is not responsible for the murders. But as the questioning continues, he starts to fumble on all of his answers and the police call him out, saying that he's being completely contradictory. He says that he has never been to Maggie Valley and that he did not write the letter that was found in the envelope. His statements continue to be contradictory and nothing is adding up, but the police 100% believe that he is responsible for the murders, even though he says that Joe and Rufus are the ones responsible. At this point, the police are so adamant that Eddie is the one who wrote the letter that was found in Maggie Valley. So they bring in Thomas Strict, who is a United States Postal Inspector and he is an expert when it comes to comparing handwriting. He examined the letter that was found in Maggie Valley and he examines handwriting that belongs to Tattoo Eddie and would you guess it's a perfect match. After the handwriting is considered a perfect match, Tattoo Eddie was arrested for the murders of Melissa Hill and Troy Valentine. In 1988, he was sentenced to death, but in 2002, he was determined to be mentally unstable and was not able to be executed. So he was then sentenced to three consecutive life sentences where he was to wait out his prison sentence in the Wardburg Correctional Facility. Joe DiModica and Kimberly Pelly both received life sentences for their parts in the murders. Rufus Dobie pled guilty for his part in the murders but has since been released and is living supposedly in the Nashville, Tennessee area. But guess what? In 2015, karma hit Tattoo Eddie hard when he was murdered in prison. I've said it several times throughout this episode and I'm going to say it again. This kind of crime in Gatlinburg, Tennessee just does not ever happen. This murder back in 1986 literally just sent shockwaves through the locals. So that is why I was so shocked that I had actually never heard about this entire crime until just a few days ago. But as somebody who grew up in Gatlinburg, I will also say the authorities there in Gatlinburg and all the local officials will go to every possible end that they can to cover up any crime that takes place in that town because they want to keep that wholesome fairy tale vacation town look. But there has been several mysterious deaths coming out of Gatlinburg, Tennessee that have never been fully investigated. So it is my plan to look into them and cover them right here on Crimeholics. So stay tuned. Crimeholics, if you haven't already, I highly encourage you to join our Crimeholics podcast discussion group on Facebook. You can follow us on Instagram at crimeholics.podcast or you can follow me personally at this is Kenzie, K-E-N-Z-I underscore on Instagram. Crimeholics, as always, be aware and take care.